Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben. So we just finished up with kind of part one. So we're going to do part two now. And hopefully in the first half of this discussion, we're able to kind of frame a narrative, frame a a way of thinking about this that is a little bit different because we brought in section 98. We brought in how the Nephites viewed war. We've and, and also the Nephite righteous wicked dilemma. And I, man, I love how you ended that with juxtaposing you know, Christ's way with how the Nephite traditions were going. And we talked a little bit about how scripture is this ebb and flow of righteousness, that it's not this high, holy, celestial standard of liberty and freedom and and God's holy way all the time, but rather scripture is a story of everyone's ups and downs, not necessarily like a pride cycle, like a circle, but, you know, I see it like a lot of ups and downs, valleys and hills and peaks and troughs. And the whole point of scripture is not that, hey, everybody's in the perfect descriptive way of Zion, but no matter where you are, God will deliver you. And I find so much more value in that to be able to show that no matter where we are, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what level of spirituality or righteousness we think we are or we're not, God is always there. And so that's what I really get out of the word chapters here, especially juxtaposing them against the the higher standard, as I look at it, of the missionary work with Alma and Ammon is because in this particular way, I feel like Mormon is showing us of saying like, listen, here, here it is. I've seen your day. I know what's going on. There's going to be all of this war. You're going to have the option of going to war and you're going to have the option of basically bearing down with pure testimony. And you're going to have these two things and you're going to hold them in either hand and you get to make a choice. And if you want to choose one, let me tell you how that's going to go. And if you're going to choose war, let me tell you how this is going to go. And so in a lot of ways, I look at this as Mormon saying, okay, so you chose war. Let me explain how this is going to go. I'm going to find the best of the best of the best of the best. You know, I think of men in black with this, like with, you know, with honor, <laughs> yeah, with honors, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, I'm going to find the absolute best figure I can possibly find. One that I resonate with. And I love how you went back into Mormon's story and really framed who and what Mormon was because I think that adds a lot of rich context and authenticity to the Book of Mormon to realize just how much of the authors and the, well, in this case, Mormon as a compiler really had Mormon's voice, his tone, his life experience, his bias, his truth, everything that is Mormon and unique to Mormon really comes out in the Book of Mormon. And I think we have to recognize that and we have to settle with it and we have to find joy in it even to be able to recognize that maybe the Book of Mormon, you know, Joseph Smith said it's the most correct book out of any other book and the men will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts and by any other book. 
And, but then also, it also says that if there are errors, there are the errors of men and don't discount the things of God because of the errors of men. And we know though, is that there's no such thing as objective history. There's no such thing as objective history. The person writing it down is going to be biased. That's it. There is no way to write objective history because the, even if someone writes objective history, the person who is interpreting it now 2,000 years later is not going to interpret it objectively. So even if one side of it is, a, is objective, the second side is not. Now we can say, well, we got to have the spirit of revelation. Well, the thing is, has been, I have multiple times in my life had a spectrum of options that were, had contradicted other times in my life. And so a lot of the times, even with the spirit of, of revelation and prophecy, we have to be open and humble to this and recognize that these were just men. These were just men. And they were doing their best. And they worked out the best that they could before God. Now, one of the things we brought out is why is... Why is Mormon fanboying over Moroni so much? And, you know, let, let's read a, lot of, a little bit about that, because Alma 48 is really just, it really is a powerful chapter. So let's read a little bit about this. Hugh Nibley brings up, and it was one of the things that you had talked about, that one of the things that Moroni is trying to do for his people is he's trying to prepare their hearts almost more than he's trying to prepare them physically. And we find evidence for that in 48 verse 7. And now it came to pass that while Amalekiah had thus been obtaining power by fraud and deceit, Moroni, on the other hand, had been preparing the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord their God. I love that. See, it shows that Moroni understands these things. He's understanding this. But his people, as we learned from last time, the people are a mixed bag. The Nephites, as a collective unit, as, as a traditional unit, as their culture has informed them, have not reached a place of conversion, even in their righteous pride cycles, like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. He's working with what he's got. And so this is Mormon being like, I've got the best of the best of the best example. In fact, let me tell you about this guy. Moroni was a strong and a mighty man. He was a man of perfect understanding. He did not delight in bloodshed. A man whose soul did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and of his brethren from bondage and slavery. I mean, what could be wrong with that, right? A man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges and blessings which were bestowed upon his people. A man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and the safety of his people. Man, man this just keeps on going, and it goes through the whole thing. And he had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, and his country, and his religion, even to the loss of his blood. Now the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even to the shedding of blood, if it were necessary. Yea, and they were also taught to never give an offense, and never to raise the sword except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. And this was their faith, that by so doing... God would prosper them in the land, or in other words, if they were faithful and keep the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land. Yea, warn them to flee, or to prepare for war according to their danger. Now, I find this verse really fascinating because this was their faith. As if to say, this was their belief. This, this is how they operated it. Here is, he's, con he's contextualizing the narrative upon which they lived under. Now, I don't see how this is like a celestial standard of this is the way it needs to be. This is the way that all people are. This is the way the celestial kingdom works. This is how the Nephites did it. 
that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land, or in other words, if they were keep faithful and keeping the commandments, that he would prosper them in the land. Now, what does prosper them in the land mean? Because that means something completely different to me now than I'm reading it means to them. They're thinking this means physical prosperity. They can't possibly stand a life where they, they die and where they're not prospering in the land physically. And also, God would make it known unto them whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemies, and by so doing, the Lord would deliver them, and thus was the faith of Moroni, and his heart did glory in it. Not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good, in preserving the people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God, yea, in resisting iniquity. I love that, you know, resisting, whenever I see resisting, man, that's just, that's just, it's Sermon on the Mount talk, and we can get into that. But when he say here in verse 17, yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, and you talked about this a little bit before in the previous episode, if all men had been and were and ever would be likened to Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, and the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Yea, he was a man like unto Ammon and the sons of Mosiah. Yea, even the other sons of Mosiah. Yea, and also unto Ammon and his sons, for they were all men of God. And and, and Helaman and his brethren were no less serviceable unto the people than was Moroni, for they did preach the word of God, and they did baptize unto repentance. Man, there's so much to unfold there. But needless to say, is that we have this caricature. These last verses, 11 through 19, have they'd have no equal in the Book of Mormon to any other figure. Not even Jesus gets this kind of <laughs> hype, Right? Like, 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 like this, this doesn't even happen to the savior. Mormon is looking at this guy and is just over and over and over. And this is his character. And so I have to ask myself, why, why do we get this for Moroni? And for me, that becomes because he is the best that Mormon can hope for in his life. I see Mormon. I see a lot of evidence. My wife wrote an article about it and, and I'll po post it in the comments below. But my wife wrote an article where it's like, how did Mormon see Moroni and how did the, why the war chapters? And in a lot of ways, just like you said in the last podcast, Ben, is that Mormon has been, he knows nothing but war. He knows nothing but war. And by knowing nothing but war, he sees Moroni as something to emulate that he has no equal in his own society. He sees a man who's faithful, a man who leads, a man who takes charge, a man who can defend. And Mormon copies a lot of what Moroni does, but even Mormon later on in his life fails in trying to recreate what Moroni did, which leads Mormon later on in his life to be like, you know what? It's all about love. It was never about war and defending anything. But now we begin kind of, we have to start over in 43. So here we go with 43. Yeah. So the, there's a, a very, you know, we talked about the, the different narratives competing narratives here of these war chapters versus everything that Alma the Younger has experienced. And, you know, it's it's almost like we have Alma in his preaching and then the sons of Mosiah. The, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are returned to the Nephites. And this society that comes into being of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's um, is basically a an example or a city on a hill as it were right to the Nephites. It's this is what you could be. This is what you could be. 
and it stares them in the face. (laughs) And the Nephites have to make a choice because just before Ammon and his brethren went to the Lamanites, the Nephites told Ammon that he was being ridiculous. And really what they needed to do was get their armies together and go wipe out the Lamanites completely before the Lamanites wiped them out. Preemptive, aggressive war, right? So then we have the complete opposite end of the spectrum, people who have really taken upon themselves the name of Christ and have established Zion and are willing to sacrifice for the other because of love, pure love, come among the Nephites and the Nephites give them their lands but they don't really emulate or follow any of their examples. And in fact, you know, they have the land of Jershon, but then the anti-Nephites have to leave the land of Jershon so that the Nephites can fight their war. And the anti-Nephites go to Melik. And so we, you know, the a couple podcasts ago, we talked about, or, you know, my idea that I could kind of seen of this sort of spectrum of aggressive warfare on one side and Christ on the other. And somewhere in the middle, we had this concept of defense and just war theory, a la Book of Mormon, and that you were talking about. And I see Moroni, Captain Moroni, is kind of sitting there, right? The Nephites weren't really willing and ready to accept the life and the state of being that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's offered to them essentially just by their mere existence and proximity and so what they got instead and were able to accept was this concept that captain moroni brings to them and it's this concept that you can be faithful but still engage in warfare in order to preserve your lives and your family and it's uh, it's what we might call in some contexts a lower law, right? But in, in any case, we see Moroni, Captain Moroni, in his efforts to to try to elevate the people to something more than they were before. Whereas in Alma chapter twenty six, they wanted to actually go and aggress against the Lamanites and wipe them out. We see something different here that Moroni is able to uh, sort of rein in that of the people and and make them consider a higher, loftier goal, and that it was simply the preservation of their liberties and their families and, and the defense of, of their homes and not the lusting after the bloodshed of their enemies. So in that sense, you know, Moroni really does, um, you know, really does a, a ministry among these people. Um, but there was something more they could have had, right? They they were offered something more and they chose, they didn't choose to accept it. Now we have three kind of bad guys in the war chapters here. You know, we first start off with Zarahemna and we, we deal with Zarahemna in chapter 43 and 44. Then after Zarahemna comes along, you know, we deal with our next major enemy, and that is Amalekiah. And we're going to talk about how Amalekiah came into power and a little bit about that. And we're not going to get so much into talking about all the strategies and the times when Amalekiah did a strategy to become the king of the Lamanites. 
But, you know, finally, Tiancum comes in in the later chapters here of what we're reading today and kills Amalekite in his sleep. And like it always happens with a bad guy, you kill one bad guy, another guy comes up into his place. And so for the next bad guy that's coming around is Amaron. And Amaron is Amalekiah's brother. So those are our three, what we call enemies that we're dealing with. And in chapter 43, we have it stand up because Zarahemna now is a dissenter. And Zarahemna is is a leader, and they typically start because they want to either get power, they put it to a vote, the people don't vote for him. This is exactly what happened with the war with Amlicai in chapter 1 of Alma. And so it's just the same theme comes over. People want to vote for power, you don't get into power, you throw a coup. And so in this particular way, we see a lot of the evidence of how more Mormon and Moroni are both thinking on the same terms. And right here at the gate, right out the gate of chapter 43, we see Mormon going through and for the first time really starting to frame for us the belief and justification structure of the Nephites. And so we see that in chapter 43, verse 8, or yeah, 43, verse 8, it says, For behold, Zarahemna's designs were to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites, and thus he did that he might usurp the great power over them, and also that he might gain power over the Nephites by bringing them into bondage. Okay, so this is the Nephite. This is the Nephite's fear is to be brought into bondage. So here's the first justification. And now the design of the Nephites was to support their land and their houses and their wives and their children that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies. Justification number one. Justification number two. And also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges and also their liberty that they might worship God according to their desires. Justification three. For they knew that if they should fall into the hands of the Lamanites, that whosoever should worship God in spirit and truth, the true and living God, the Lamanites would destroy. So you couldn't worship at all either. So at that point, you come into the justification number four, and this is where you start, because of how we've been able to talk about this, and I, I love that we can be able to see this now. But in verse 11, it says, And they also knew the extreme hatred of the Lamanites towards their brethren, who were the people of the anti-Nephi-Lehi, who were called the people of Ammon. So basically, the Nephites are now looking over at the people of Ammon and be like, oh yeah, and we got to go protect them. So they still don't understand who those people are, who have given up Jershon, who've moved over to Melik. And so the ne- this is the Nephite perception of who the Nephites are. This isn't, this isn't definitive celestial ways of looking at things. But the thing is, is that because of our socio-cultural Americanism, and because of the way that our narratives of Americans work, we are the Nephites. The reason why we identify so ardently here with these narratives and not necessarily with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and why we relegate and we justify away the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as a higher standard is because we are the Nephites. We agree with these narratives. This whole, we defend, we don't come out with offense, but we just defend ourselves. That's American just war theory. And it's been the same thing. That's how we operate or have operated until, you know, rather recently. So in this way, as Americans, we find it really easy to take the side of the Nephites and to say this is who and what we should be. And we don't critically analyze that the way the Nephites were did not have a higher understanding or a deeper conversion than what could have been otherwise. But nevertheless... Because the scriptures are not about simply the highest standard, 
and about us and about how the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs about how God's people go through life. Yet, even though we are the Nephites, God will still deliver us. And that's where I find a lot of, when we talk about, and Ben, we're, you know, we're going to bring it up because it's absolutely beautiful and I'm going to do it again. <laughs> and we're going to, I'm going to keep on bringing it up as many times as we can. And so often it seems to be with people having such a firm grasp of the world, that which is celestial, that no amount of urging and no degree of emergency can persuade them to let go of in favor of that which is celestial. Satan gets them easily in his grip. If we insist on spending all of our time and resources in building up for ourselves a worldly kingdom, well, that's exactly what we're going to inherit. Now, of course, this quote is coming from Spencer W. Kimball in The False Gods We Worship. In spite of our delight in defining ourselves as modern and our tendency to think that we, we possess a sophistication that no people in the world ever had, and in spite of these things, we are, on the whole, an idolatrous people, a condition most repugnant to the Lord. See, we are a warlike people, easily distracted from our assignment of preparing for the coming of the Lord. When enemies rise up, now think about the Nephites, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, fortifications. We depend upon them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We train a man in the art of war, and we call him a patriot. Thus, in the manner of Satan's counterfeit of true patriotism, pervert the Savior's teaching. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. See, we forget that if we were righteous, the Lord would either not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is a special promise to the inhabitants of the Lord in the Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. See, this he's able to do for the time of his betrayal. He said, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? We can imagine what fearsome soldiers they would be. King Jehoshaphat and his people were delivered by such a troop. When Elisha's life was threatened, he comforted his servant by saying, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. The Lord then opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around and about Elisha. What are we to fear when the Lord is with us? Can we not take the Lord at his word and exercise a particle of faith in him? See, our assignment is affirmative to forsake the things of the world as ends in themselves, to leave off idolatry and to press forward in faith, to carry the gospel to our enemies, that they will no longer be our enemies. See, that's what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did. See, you carry the gospel to your enemy so that they're no longer your enemy. That's what the sons of Mosiah did. And see, that's what Abinadi did. That's what all missionaries do. You carry the gospel to your enemies that they will no longer be your enemies. And we're going to find out many, many, many future places in the Book of Mormon where that is the case and that plays out. In fact, we will see that the whole point of the war chapters, Ben, <laughs> once we get to the very end and Moroni dies and his son Moroni ha takes over, then the Nephites actually lose half of their land and they can never get it back through war. But what they do is they end up sending missionaries into the Lamanites, converting the Lamanites again, and then the Lamanites just give the land back. <laughs> it's great. It is amazing. It is it is like the it is like the greatest finality to the greatest final to all of the war Redemption. chapters. Yeah. Yeah, it's just pure redemption. So in this way, we see that Moroni is having a conflict with Zarahemna. We're, and let's just put ourselves into this, we're the Nephites here. Okay. 
So as he's going along, Moroni ends up knowing the prophecies of Elma. And I love how it says this. So once Moroni is in a conflict with Zarahemla, he's looking for a little bit of divine help. And it says in verse 23, And it came to pass that as they had departed into the wilderness, Moroni sent spies into the wilderness to watch the camp of Zarahemla. And Moroni, also knowing of the prophecies of Alma, sent certain men unto him, desiring him what he should inquire of the Lord, whether the armies of the Nephites should go to defend themselves against the Lamanites. Now, Alma does acquiesce. Alma does get, send back information, does let him know. And then Moroni comes around and is... And is uh, follows the the prophecy of Alma and is successful. But here's what's also fascinating is that in chapter 20, in chapter 43, I find in verse 26 in 30 and 45, three specific places where Mormon justifies Moroni's justification of either using stratagem or to try to justify the Nephite way of living or that like for instance, in verse 45, nevertheless, the Nephites were inspired by a better cause for they were not fighting for simply monarchy or power, but they were fighting for their homes and their liberties and their wives and their children, yea, for all of their rights in the worship of the church. And they were doing what they felt was their duty with which they owed their God. Now, did God require that at their hand? Uh, I, I don't know. That was their narrative. You know, there's some very interesting contrasts here. You know, we've talked about how this how this contrasts with with Alma's experience. And I've, I've got a few comparisons to make here. The first one that stands out to me at the moment, you know, after Moroni has by strategy surrounded the Lamanites and uh, Zarahemna's army and they're killing them. And then, you know, verse 54, Moroni, when he saw their terror, commanded his men that they should stop shedding their blood. I mean, we've got to give some pretty good credit here to Moroni because in the heat of battle, when you've got your enemy, you can destroy them. You do it, right? And this is this is pretty solid evidence that Moroni really didn't have a desire to shed blood, notwithstanding the fact that he does have some anger issues. <laughs> and and I'm not judging Moroni. I probably have worse anger issues than Moroni did. I, <laughs> but, uh, you know, over in verse 17 of chapter 44, it says, and now Moroni was angry because of the stubbornness of the Lamanites. Therefore, he commanded his people that they should fall upon them and slay them. Well, come on, Moroni. <laughs> and again, I'm not judging him here because I don't know that I would have done differently in that situation. But, you know, Moroni definitely doesn't have full control of, of his anger here. But uh, to point uh, here in, in, in chapter 44, we have some competing narratives here. So I'm going to read verses three and four, and then I'm going to compare it back to the way that uh, Mormon describes the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. So here, here's the, uh, the Nephite ethic. But now ye behold, this is Moroni talking to Zarahemna after he's surrounded him. Ye behold that the Lord is with us, and ye behold that he has delivered you into our hands. And now I would that you should understand that this is done unto us because of our religion and our faith in Christ. And now you see that you cannot destroy this our faith. Now you see that this is the true faith of God. Wow, that's quite a statement, right? We just beat you in battle. Therefore, we're the true faith of God. Yeah. 
Yea, ye see that God will support and keep and preserve us so long as we are faithful unto him and unto our faith and our religion, and never will the Lord suffer that we shall be destroyed except we should fall into transgression and deny our faith. So this is quite the nationalist proclamation here of Moroni in terms of him juxtaposing his their faith to that of the apostasy of the Lamanites and their inability to defeat them in battle. You know, it's because their God is not as powerful as Moroni's God, right? So let's compare this to Alma chapter 27, verses 27 through 30. This is Mormon's discussion of the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. And uh, consider this narrative, again, in contrast to what Captain Moroni just said about their faith. And they were among the people of Nephi, and also numbered among the people who were of the church of God. And they were also distinguished for their zeal towards God, and also towards men. For they were perfectly honest and upright in all things, and they were firm in the faith of Christ, even unto the end. And they did look upon shedding the blood of their brethren with the greatest abhorrence, and they never could be prevailed upon to take up arms against their brethren, and they never did look upon death with any degree of terror, for their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection. Therefore death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. Therefore they would suffer death in the most aggravating and distressing manner which could be inflicted by their brethren before they would take up the sword or scimitar to smite them. And thus they were a zealous and beloved people, a highly favored people of the Lord. This, uh, this pretty solidly uh, contradicts Moroni's narrative of, of the faith here. You know, it begs a lot of questions about the premises that Moroni is operating under here. I don't know that I, I can answer all the questions about it, but I do know that it presents to us, again, these choices, these options of this sort of nationalist counterfeit versus the way of Christ. And this is offered to us, and it's the old Joshua thing, right? Choose you this day whom you will serve. In chapter 44, verse 5, Moroni ends up talking to Zarahemna, and we see a little bit into the the thought process of Moroni. And, and, and I love exactly what you said there, Ben, because this is going to add to that. He says, And now, Zarahemna, I command you in the name of that powerful God who has strengthened our arms, that we have gained power over you, number one, by our faith, two, by our religion, and three, by our rights of worship. So it was their rights of worship that ended up giving them power over the other people by our church, by our sacred support, which we owe to our wives and children, by the liberty which binds us to our lands and our country, by the maintenance of the sacred word of God, by which we owe all our happiness, and above all, which is dear to us. Yea, and this is not all, I command you by all the desires which ye have for life. So, I mean, so, so the, these are the things in which Moroni is kind of bringing in the meaning into why he's been victorious in this. And Zarahemna's like, yeah, I don't know about all that. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I, I don't I don't necessarily think it's all those things. I think it's because you have a head plate and you have chest plates and you have protective gear and you're all padded up and we're literally sitting over here with loincloths and a sword. And Moroni's Moroni's like, absolutely you not. You have better swords because they're made after the 
the manner of the sword of Laban, and we just have these crummy swords. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and and at that point, it says uh, Zarahemna's response is, "Behold, we are not of your faith." We do not believe that it is God that has delivered us into your hands, but we believe that it's your cunning that has preserved you from the swords. Behold, it's your breastplates and it's your shields that have preserved you. Right? And then at that point, the narrative is like, well, no, it's not. But then Mormon lets a little something slip over here and just on the other column in verse 18. You have to give it to Moroni. And this is one of the things I absolutely love about Moroni is that even though he's in this narrative, this Nephite narrative, it's so true. He has no desire for bloodshed. He has no desire to go out and, and to seek for power. And to put a man in charge of an army like that, when you have the spirit of military and that spirit of power, and to have someone who's not seeking for power like that, almost like a modern day George Washington of how we framed the narrative about George Washington and the creation of our country. When you have that kind of man, you really have to do realize the powerful nature of Moroni's character to be that kind of man that he is. And, you know, sometimes he, I think he falters in it a little bit. You brought up uh, about how he slayed people who were nonviolent dissidents to the cause. Um, I don't agree with that. I don't think that is, you know, we'll, we'll get into that, but uh, there's some pretty interesting language surrounding all that. But then Mormon lets it slip because when Moroni, he doesn't, he doesn't just destroy the enemy. He, he pulls out every time he sees that people might surrender, he does pull back. And then whenever they're like, nope, we're not going to surrender, then he hits them again. And then he pulls back when, and when it looks like they might, uh, they might uh, surrender. But, and one of the times when, when they're fighting in verse 18, it says, but behold, the naked skins of the Lamanites and their bare heads were exposed to the sharp swords of the Nephites. Yea, and behold, they were pierced and smitten, and they did fall exceedingly fast before the swords of the Nephites, and they began to be swept down, even as a soldier, as a soldier of Moroni had prophesied. So, was it God? Yes, but was it also the fact <laughs> that you had nothing on but loincloths, and the other people had a lot of uh, a lot of protective gear? Yeah, it seems to be that too. So the, the reason why I bring this up is that these are the kind of narratives that often creep into our exegesis and our hermeneutics. These are the kind of narratives that because we we are the Nephites, because as Americans, we are the Nephites, because we take that kind of military approach, we kind of glaze over this and we're like, oh, well, yeah, well, of course we we won because God was on our side. It didn't matter that we had far superior weapons than our enemies. It was God, you know, God was in our strengths and he was in our flanks and he was, he, he, he took care of us. But in a lot of ways it was, it was also the fact, now you can say that God was in their preparations for war, that God had kind of instructed them. Sure. That's fine. But at the end of the day, it's because you were padded and, and, and that at least did play a part into it. And so a lot of the times we do glaze over that as, as like, no, it was just God, God defended him. But it was also the fact that there was some pre preparation there too. You know, and in, in this next chapter, chapter 45, I see Alma as having quite the commentary and critique of this Nephite narrative and mentality, this uh, nationalistic idea, concept that they're always the good guys, the Lamanites are always the bad guys. Jacob had a long uh, talk to the Nephites about this, about that, how that wasn't the case. And it's been prophesied multiple times. I mean, Alma talked about this as well in earlier chapters, that the Lord would preserve the Lamanites, but the Nephites 
he prophesied could be destroyed because of their iniquity. In any case, the what that seems to be is this arrogance and pride that is kind of tied to this Nephite narrative of of their nationalism and the fact that they believe they're a better people because they have uh, been separated from their brethren and you know, there's a little bit of racism, I think, that goes along with it at some points here and there. Um, I think as the Book of Mormon goes along, that sort of diminishes. But Jacob certainly brings it up in terms of the, the racism. Uh, so anyway, to the point that the critique that Alma gives of of this concept of Nephites, and I'm going to put Nephites in quotes because, um, well, it, it'll become clear as we read what, what Alma says. So he starts in verse 9. He's talking to his son Helaman. He's about to give him the plates, and he says, uh, I have somewhat to prophesy unto thee, but what I prophesy unto thee thou shalt not make known. Yea, what I prophesy unto thee shall not be made known even until the prophecy is fulfilled. Therefore write the words which I shall say. And these are the words. Behold, I perceive that this very people, the Nephites, according to the spirit of revelation which is in me, in four hundred years from the time that Jesus Christ shall manifest himself unto them, shall dwindle in unbelief. I'm going to go on and read through to through verse 12, I think, is so I want to do. But I want to comment here when he says this very people, the Nephites. Well, you know, it's interesting that he would say that because 400 years after Christ, this very people, the Nephites, really aren't the same people as the Nephites right here. They're really a, a different people. OK, the there was a, a period where there were no ites right, for a really long time, and then all of a sudden they divided themselves up into these groups again, and they weren't distinguished by uh, race or anything. They were distinguished by their cultures and, uh, first off, the religion, but then it became a more of a cultural thing over time, right? And what it seems to be here is Alma's saying, hey, this whole Nephite ethos is a problem, and when the Nephites as such become a people again and readopt this nationalistic Nephite ethos, it's going to lead to their destruction. And the Lamanites don't seem to have this problem um, because they don't identify themselves all the time necessarily as Lamanites. You know, we talked about how Lamanites are actually seem to be sort of this loose um, uh, confederation of different tribes or peoples. Um, and But the Nephites just call them Lamanites. Of course, we have the record of the Nephites. and But Lamanite is sort of a generic term for anybody that's not a Nephite, right? <laughs> right. Um, anybody that's not a Nephite is a Lamanite. And, and it says that multiple times through the scriptures. It says, oh, well, there's Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites and Ishmaelites, but I'm just going to call them Nephites and Lamanites. Anybody who's not a Nephite is a Lamanite. And so again, we've got this, Alma seems to be talking about sort of this Nephite nationalism, so to speak, right? That this idea is actually a problem and he's identifying it to Helaman because he says, look what's happening right now. This, this is happening to this people right now. We just had this war and this is not going to go well if they continue in this mindset. This can lead to their destruction, and ultimately it will even after Christ comes. If they readopt this nationalist ethos, it's going to be a problem. So he continues, um, Yea, and then shall they see wars and pestilences, if famines and bloodshed. Why? Well, 
This is, this is what nationalism does. Even until the people of Nephi shall become extinct, yea, and this because they shall dwindle in unbelief and fall into the works of darkness and lasciviousness and all manner of iniquities, yea, I say unto you that because they shall sin against so great light and knowledge. You know, part of the Nephi ethos is we are the true religion of God, and so therefore we're a better people. Whereas, you know, Nephi, Nephi taught them and the prophets are continually teaching them just because you have the gospel doesn't mean you're better. It means you have a blessing and a responsibility to carry that to other people. But the Nephites turn that around and they say, oh, well, we're better people because we have the gospel. Yea, I say unto you that from that day, even the fourth generation shall not pass away before this great iniquity shall come. So again, this is a very interesting commentary right here in the middle of all this war stuff that Alma makes, this prophecy that he makes and tells to his son and says, don't bring this up until it, it comes to pass. And I can tell this because I can see the way things are going. And then Alma talks to him a little bit more and, and blesses the earth for the righteous sake. I like that phrase. I, we could talk for that for a little bit. But over in verse 18, uh, you, you asked this question and it made me think about this. I had never quite thought of it before. Verse 18, it says, When Alma had done this, he departed out of the land of Zarahemla as if to go into the land of Melech. Well, what's the land of Melech? Well, the, the anti-Nevi-Lehi's have left Jershon, and where they go? They went to Melech. And so Alma seems to be going over to live with them. It says, and it came to pass that he was never heard of more. As to his death or burial, we know not of. You know, and they assume he was taken up by the Spirit. So Alma potentially translated here, kind of like a, an Enoch, Zion type thing, or an Elijah type thing. This alludes to the fact that Alma has has reached a place where he could live a celestial law. And so he's taken up that way. Or at least he longs to be with a people that live that law. And that seems to be why he goes towards Melech, where the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are. That's a really great point, because we're really seeing the end of Alma here. It also shows that this is where Alma's story ends and where Helaman's story begins. And in fact, at the mm-hmm. end of uh, at the end of forty five, we end up seeing that, and that's uh, that's really powerful because this whole time that we've been doing these "Come Follow Me" has been we've been dealing with Alma's narrative. You know, we started with the reign of the judges and with how that was that was given from Uzziah, and Alma has been who we've talked about this whole time you know, barring with Ammon in the, in the Antony for Lehi's. But this whole narrative that has transpired is Alma's narrative. It was his days of using the sword with Amlesai, of using the government for, you know, as the chief judge, his days of using all of that. And he gave all that up very early in his life. He, and then he decided, you know, in, in chapter four, verse 17, is it 17 or 19? I always get that wrong. I think it's 19. I think it's chapter four, verse 19 where he gives up the government and he gives up the sword and he says he's going to go out and try the virtue of the word of God and bear down pure testimony. And then he goes out as a missionary and converts the masses, as do the sons of Mosiah. And here is the where in chapter 45 is where we see the end of that narrative. Alma's full journey, realizing the futility of the sword, the power of the testimony, and how all that transpires. And we see him in all those different contexts and then among the Zoramites, and it says he couldn't rest, so he got up again and 
he went out in his old age. I love that. He's just, he couldn't rest in his old age. And he got up, he walked out again to go be, to be a missionary. But yeah, he's sitting down with Helaman for the very last time and he's giving him his very last counsel. And now Helaman has this knowledge that he, he kind of knows what's going to happen at the, at the end, sort of kind of almost maybe, but maybe not in the way that he thinks. And then Alma leaves to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as if to go there anyway. Yeah. Man, what a way to what a way to capstone that story of Alma. And he he's he's done. I mean, the story of Alma's done now. It's very poetic. It is so poetic. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. It is such a beautiful way of like him walking off into the sunset to the to the peaceful <laughs> land of the anti Nephi Lehi's. Right. I'm like, I want to go with you. <laughs> That's where I want to go too. Can you imagine anywhere he's like, Well, where should I go now? And it's like the only other place that you can I'm just going to the I want to go to those people, right? And then the next chapter we have a Malachiah, you know, arguably the most uh, hated evil man besides maybe like Gadianton himself in the Book of Mormon, right? Yeah. So uh, a Malachiah, we get we get insight into the uh, what's the term? You know, the the wiles or the the cunning and the manipulations of of Amalekiah more than the most other villains so to speak in the book of mormon but uh you know Amalekiah is just a master politician isn't he you know just just wonderful uh, on his politics the way that he's able to manipulate and twist sides to to do ultimately what he wants done wow yeah absolutely you know, I did a podcast with JC and LDS Liberty years and years ago about 46 because there was this insight that I had and Nibley talks a little bit about it. And, and I think I got it from just a, a, a verse that he had and, and it kind of clicked for me. But because of the war with Zarahemna, oh, and there was something, you know, as, as we said, Ben, when we very first started recording uh, the very first episode here for uh, the war chapters, we were a little bit dumbfounded and worried because there's just so much here. And I knew I was going to forget something. But in the last episode, you brought up Section 98, and Section 98 is the the principle of war. It says that if someone comes up to you and attacks you, you need to basically receive it and not revile back, not return evil for evil, violence for violence. And then, but if you do, then the Lord's like, well, you fought back and I can't do anything about it. That's that. It, that's, yeah, that's that. that. Yeah, it's and I do the same thing to my kids, right? You know, if one person comes in and like hits another kid and they hit back, I'm like, well, I, I, it's justice. You just finished it up yourself. There's nothing I can do here. Um, but if it, if you don't revile back and he comes against you a second time, then you bear it patiently and it's a hundredfold blessed unto you. But if he comes against you a third time and you don't revile back, then at that point the Lord says that if he commands you at that point. And if he allows it, then and only then are you justified in self-defense to, to actually defend yourself. But here's the, here's the real kicker is that if you choose to turn the cheek the fourth, you know, up to the fourth time, he comes against you a fourth time, even after you've been told it's justified to fight back. And even if you just turn the other cheek a fourth time, then and only then in that whole context is it counted as righteousness unto you. But see, after the third time, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to put up a petition of peace to your enemy, basically saying, in the name of God, don't come against me anymore. Otherwise, God will, God will allow it, and I'll come against you and fight you, and I'll kill you, right? and I'll defy it. And then at that point, you're justified. Now, justification is just this doctrine that whatever you do, whatever ground you stand on, 
you're, you're no longer suffering the consequence of that evil, as it were. And so you stand on this ground. Technically, it's not righteousness. It's not a step in a progression in a direction towards God. But in that moment of whatever you're doing, the consequence is taken away, as it were. And so in this, I see Alm, or when we read it just a minute ago, when Moroni stood forth to Zarahemna and he gave those lists and those questions that I, or those, those statements that I read, the, all nine of them, I see that as that moment, that third defense that Moroni has, that now he's kind of putting, putting up a petition to Zarahemna, and I'm not going to come against you, but if you do this, I'm going to come and destroy you. I see Moroni trying to do that. Now, one of the things about the war chapters is that we don't get a step-by-step of whether or not they followed Section 98's right. pro- protocol. Yeah, we have to sort of infer certain things. Yeah. So if there, if these are justified wars, we have to infer a lot. And so we kind of try to piece together when they're doing what they're doing. And is this, is this them trying to fulfill that qualification? And, and so there's a lot of that going on. But at the end of 45, you know, this is a transition chapter. The war was so bad with Zarahemna that now they've never had a war like this. In fact, they didn't even number the dead. It was so great. And so now Helaman comes back, Alma is gone, and so now there Helaman comes back, and now there has to be a new regulation put on the church. Basically, the church has been obliterated. War literally destroyed the church, and the leaders had to go back through and try to put a new regulation on it. So it says in verse 21, For behold, because of their wars with the Lamanites, and the many little dissensions and the disturbances which had been among the people, it had become expedient that the word of God should be preached among them, yea, and that they that a regulation should be made throughout the church. So Helaman and his brethren went forth to establish the church again in all the land, yea, in every city throughout all the land which was possessed by the people of Nephi. And it came to pass that they did appoint priests and teachers throughout all the land over all the churches. And it came to pass that after Helaman and his brethren had appointed priests and teachers over the churches, that there arose a dissension among them, and they would not give heed to the words of Helaman and his brethren. So it's this dissension. It's that the church has been obliterated. Helaman starts to go back to reorganize the church. And now there's a power grab. Now there's a dissension. Now there's, there is a faction of the church that doesn't recognize Helaman's authority, the one that Alma gave to him. And they grew proud, being lifted up in their hearts because of their exceeding great riches. Therefore, they grew rich in their own eyes and would not give heed to the words and up, walk uprightly before God. Amalekiah is the priest in this whole thing. And in fact, we're going to talk about, but I think there's a lot of evidence to show that this is very much like a Brigham Young, Sidney Rigdon moment when there's two different factions competing for which one has a, has the authority for the church and the authority to rule here. And that Helaman is kind of like your Brigham Young and Amalekiah is kind of like your Sidney Rigdon. And there's a lot of evidence for that after we get through the, the title of Liberty but it's out of this whole dissension that conflict begins because we realize that Amalekiah then, as he's descending, he also gets aspirations to be the political king. Now we want to start to overthrow the political, the political government, and he has the support of the lower judges. So now he says, you know, listen, lower judges, if you make me king, I'll appoint you into higher positions. And Helaman tries to solve this by putting heavier and heavier regulations on the church. And what I find is interesting about this, Ben, is... Because we've left the Alma narrative and we've begun 
the Helaman narrative. It's almost like we're starting over with learning about this whole nonviolence concept. Because Alma learned it with Amlesai, and he learned it that the sword the sword could do, you know, had certain power, but that preaching was even better. And so he had to try that, and it was a trial and an error, right? He wasn't perfect about it when he went out of the first time. But we see here with Helaman, it's often been asked, if nonviolence is, is a principle, why don't they just come right out and say it? Why don't we just come right out and say, why didn't Alma just come right out and tell Helaman, hey, nonviolence is the way to go, and you know, no violence, none of this, ever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I've, ta- I've thought about is that simply telling people to disarm themselves or to practice nonviolence is not the same as converting them to Christ. That it's the true conversion, like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, that then led to them actually burying their swords. But if you would have simply gone in as a Nephite and disarmed the Lamanites, that wouldn't have created like a nonviolent situation, right? That's just (laughs) forceful disarmament. And that's not the point. But see, you have to be converted to a certain place where that literally becomes your natural manifestation. And this is what we call, this is what I've called the order of the Beatitudes. It's the person who enters the cycle and the story of the Beatitudes. Someone who enters that kind of conversion towards now they are a peacemaker. So in in this way, the question's kind of, I understand the question as to why Alma is not simply telling Helaman, you need to go disarm yourselves, which this also answers why the anti-Nephi-Lehi's aren't simply telling their sons that they can't go out and be warriors either. Because there has to, because this concept of, of nonviolence or this concept of coming to Christ to understand Ammonihah and to understand the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, you have to understand conversion first. And because of that, what Alma teaches his son, Helaman, the very last thing he tells him about keeping the commandments makes perfect sense. Because Alma now is setting Helaman on the road to conversion so that Helaman will probably go through a lot of the same story, the same experiences, the same having to go through the war narrative to realize the futility of the war narrative. Alma had to go through it. And so I can see Alma having a lot of compassion on Helaman of saying, you know what? You have to understand the commandments of God and follow the commandments of God to come and to enter into this beatitude process, and you come out the end as a peacemaker. But I can't simply tell you to be a peacemaker until you've started with the beginning of the keeping the commandments and being poor in spirit and following that process. Otherwise, we just put the cart before the horse. We just disarm someone who hasn't themselves disarmed themselves from within. And so that basically, being, you know, it's like a government coming out and forcefully disarming its citizens thinking that we've created peace. Well, no, you've just forcefully, you haven't solved anybody's heart. You haven't cured any, you've just made enemies everywhere. And we find that with the king then, right? When Moroni comes in and he, right. just, and he kills them all and then he's like, convert or die. And then the, he's like, well, and, Mor- and Moroni successfully did that. And we're like, well, no, he didn't. But as soon as he goes and goes out to war again, well, then we have a problem with the king men all over again. <laughs> so yeah, he didn't, didn't really solve that problem. Yeah, he doesn't solve anything because you're not solving the conversion. And that's the whole point is we're looking to be converted. And as we talked about before is that the Nephite pride cycle is so fickle that they're literally going from righteous to wicked to righteous to wicked to righteous to wicked so quickly, they're not really deeply converted. Yes, they'll call upon God when they need him. Yes, they'll call upon him when there are threats. You know what? I call upon God when I'm having a really bad time too. 
The trick is, though, can I call upon him in times of peace when I don't have threats? Right? And so we start to see that the ne- the Nephites here aren't exactly the people that we've generally narrated them to be. Now, I'm perfectly okay with that. And in fact, because of that, I look at the Nephites and they actually seem more real to me. Now I'm looking at these people thinking, man, you make so much more sense. I I resonate with the Nephites. But we had to kind of bring them into a more narrow focus and to really allow them to be who and what they were as opposed to who and what we thought. I mean, when you get that whole hell would shake and if all men were would be like into Moroni, that puts him on such a high pedestal as to like make him so superhuman. But then when you bring him down, you're like, no, he he was a man doing the best that he could. All of a sudden, the rest of this makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, this this is all to the point that it says in verse eight, you know, this is a thus we see from Mormon. Thus we see how quickly the children of men do forget the Lord their God. Yeah, how quickly to do iniquity and to be led away by the evil one. Um, the, what follows here with Moroni, you know, praying and making the title of liberty and the whole covenant thing uh, is very interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure if you want to take the time to go into some of that. But I'm wondering here again about Moroni and, and how the whole narrative here is, is shaped with him and, and what Mormon intends us to understand about him. Because I know explicitly before, you know, Mormon has a lot of things amazing things to say about Moroni here. But again, he's telling this story of him, it, and it's very, very odd, the sequence of events here. Uh, verse 11, it came to pass that when Moroni, who was the chief commander of the armies of the Nephites, had heard of these dissensions, he was angry with Amalekiah. And so what does he do when he's angry? He rips his coat and writes on it and puts all of his armor on and then kneels down to pray. And I just think that's kind of odd that in a moment of anger, you would prepare for war first, right? And then kneel down to pray. Now, I'm willing to accept here that this is Moroni acting out of anger, right? He rips his coat, he writes on, he puts all his armor on, and he's about to head out the door. And something pricks his heart, right? And says, Moroni, (laughs) slow down get down on your knees and pray. And this is kind of a humbling moment for him, right? And he realizes, you know what, before I go to war, there's something else I can do. And he goes to the people and he and he tries to to bring them to elevate them, right? Again, this this concept where he's trying to bring them to a higher law that they will covenant and that they will stay united to obey the commandments of God before he goes on to do the war thing. Right? <laughs> anyway, I kind of I like that here, where it seems like Moroni is first acting out of anger, and then all of a sudden we see him humble himself a bit and pray for the cause of Christ. So I thought that was kind of interesting, even if it's mixed in with his militarism. It's still interesting. Yeah, I I love verse 18 as well, just kind of following right through that, because in verse 18 of 46, it says, And he said, Surely God shall not suffer that we who are despised because we take upon us the name of Christ shall be trodden down and destroyed until we bring it upon ourselves by our own transgressions. So you see, it's, it's Moroni's concept that if you're righteous, you're preserved and, and you're right. not, and, 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 and there's no problems. 
But if you're Wiccan... And that's totally counter-narrative to what Alma experiences with um, the Antenephi-Lehi's and Ammonihah and everything. Exactly. So. Exactly. And and what I like here is that word, surely. I know I've, I've spent more time on that one word than I care to admit. But surely, because surely can be really taken in a couple different ways. And the two dominant ways that I see is surely can be a statement of like, absolute, this is absolutely the case. Or it can actually denote that it's him reasoning his way into this this thing. Surely, surely this is the case. And so it's more of like, this is his reasoning. Surely this is the case. And I, I tend to believe that it's more his reasoning than it is an absolute statement of fact. And the reason why is because this whole God shall not suffer that we who are despised because we've taken upon ourselves the name of Christ shall be trodden down and destroyed because of the Beatitudes. It's because of the Beatitudes that I think this is Moroni's own rationale. Because what the, the highest Beatitude, the, the apex, the, the end of the Beatitudes, after you're a peacemaker, now you've had to be poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst after righteousness. You've had to learn how to be merciful and pure in heart. And only then have you learned to be a peacemaker because you are full of mercy and your purity and you're, and you're full of righteousness. And then the world doesn't understand you. And it says then the final beatitude, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. See, this is the thing is that Moroni here is saying that, hey, God's not going to suffer that we're despised because we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. When in the Beatitudes, that's literally the, the, the call. If you're going to take upon yourselves the name of Christ, you're literally asking to be persecuted, to be reviled, to have all manner of evil and to have people come and to treat you like the prophets. Well, how were the prophets treated throughout all of history? Th they're martyrs. Isaiah was killed. Jeremiah was killed. Nephi's life was threatened. Abinadi was killed. Like all the greatest prophets, Alma and Amulek were thrown into prison. All their families were killed. The Nephites came against the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Lehi and Nephi later on, they're threatened. People die all the time. This is, this is the process of a prophet. It, you know, Joseph Smith. You know, if we want to bring in that story, Joseph Smith was killed for his testimony. He was persecuted. And so this whole thing of saying, you know what, surely God will not suffer that we who are despised because we take upon ourselves the name of Christ shall not be trodden down and destroyed. Well, yeah, actually, that's exactly the point. Yeah, it's not quite the fair narrative. Right. So we start to see that there's a lot of Moroni's, but, but this is his faith and that he's living true to as much of his faith as he can. And one of the things I'm worried about in talking about this is just that it looks like I'm dogging on Moroni, that I'm not giving him a fair chance, that I'm trying to destroy a Book of Mormon hero, that I'm trying to bring down or trying to disparage or I'm trying to limit or to de-honor or to, to just demystify. I think if I'm being honest, maybe demystification is one of it, but that has nothing to do with anything I'm talking about. Captain Moroni is one of my favorite Book of Mormon characters. I love Captain Moroni. But one of the reasons I love Captain Moroni is because in actually accepting the text for what the text is saying, 
taking it all in as the broad narrative, just not as the specific narrative, because if we're going to read this so narrow as we're only reading the text for that very specific text, then yeah, Captain Moroni is, you know, he's the best thing since sliced bread. But if we read it on a broader narrative, he is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but he's got a few problems too. (laughs) (laughs) And so we just, we have to be able to recognize who and what he is because by actually understanding who Captain Moroni is, Ben, I really think we start to understand more of who we are. And that's really the point is because we begin to see the holes in our own narratives. And we realize that, you know what, just like what President Kimball said, we like to think that we are celestial people when the fact is, is that no amount of prophetic urgency has ever gotten the members of this church to let go of that, which is not just terrestrial, but celestial. We, they can't even let us to let go of that, which is celestial for that, which is celestial. Forget about terrestrial, right? And so a lot of the times, this is what I'm seeing is that I think we are so much these Nephites that we don't allow ourselves to be able to say, you know what, even in their calling upon God, this is this is, this is is a little bit maybe more of a celestial narrative than we thought it was before. You know, I start thinking here as we start getting into these, to this next war, where Amalekai, what Amalekai is doing um, he gathers the, the people that are with him and, you know, they realize they're not going to be able to, to take control and they start, uh, running away. So, uh, Moroni doesn't want a repeat of Zarahemna. Well, he's going to get it anyway. Um, so he goes out to cut them off and, uh, kill some of them and try to bring Amalekiah back to, to try him for, his crimes, his conspiracies to overthrow their freedom. I really wonder if there was, you know, wasn't a, a better way for Moroni to go about this. Because as we're going to see in the next chapters, there's the the Lamanites are not at all eager to go to war against the Nephites again, and so anything that the Nephites do that sort of can bolster the narrative that Amalekai is going to bring to the Lamanites that the Nephites really are a dangerous people and you need to get rid of them anything that's going to bolster that narrative is actually more dangerous to the Nephites and anything that can kind of de-escalate that is going to weaken Amalekai's position and his ability to persuade the Lamanites to uh, go against the Nephites. So I'm not sure that Moroni's efforts here to stop Amalekiah from fleeing um, really uh, didn't backfire uh, here and actually cause uh, or, or contribute to, not cause, I would say contribute to uh, the, the escalation of the war here. Um, over in chapter 47, we uh, we have a Malachi here, and he gets to the Lamanites, um, and he convinces the king of the Lamanites to to go to war again. And we don't know exactly why. And it, in fact, I don't even really know. I've never figured out where chapter forty seven comes from. How we know everything that happens in chapter forty seven? I don't know. I don't know how where this information came from because. I don't know of uh, anybody that defects from Amalekiah himself. We have the king's guard that defects 
over to the Nephites, but we don't have anybody of Amalekiah. So again, I don't know where we got the information of exactly the particulars of how Amalekiah goes about doing this. But in any case, he, he convinces the king of the Lamanites to go to battle. And it came to pass in verse 2 that when the proclamation had gone forth among them, the people of the Lamanites, they were exceedingly afraid. Yea, they feared to displease the king, and they also feared to go to battle against the Nephites, lest they should lose their lives. And it came to pass that they would not, or the more part of them would not, obey the commandments of the king. So here we have the majority of the Lamanites who basically are rebelling in a civil disobedience type of way against the king who wants them to go to war. And so he sends Amalekiah out with his armies to get those people and bring them back and say, you have to go to war. Well, this is kind of what Moroni does, right? With the whole king men. So there's uh, as much as we don't want Moroni to be like Amalekiah, there are some similarities here. So in verse six, these people, they've gathered to Oneida. They have a very large group of people. It says, and they had appointed a man to be a king and a leader over them, being fixed in their minds with a determined resolution that they would not be subjected to go against the Nephites. Okay, now, if I'm a Nephite and I know this is happening, we have quite the opportunity right now, right? Quite the opportunity to get more than half of the Lamanite army to defect, or at least to refuse completely and get away from their king that wants to compel them to go to war. What if, just what if we had some sons of Mosiah that were on their way to preach the gospel to the Lamanites right now, and they came across these people? What if Instead of asking Alma to inquire of the Lord where they could go to defeat the armies of their enemies, they inquired of the Lord where they could go to preach the gospel to their enemies. What if they had found these people? I don't think it's a stretch to say they could have prevented the rest of this war. The Lamanites simply would not have had the numbers or the will to fight a war with the Nephites without more than half of their army. And I just, the Nephites really missed an opportunity here that was within their capability. And certainly there's no guarantee, right? Here we have doctrine of perhaps that perhaps they might have persuaded this army of the Lamanites to not necessarily defect, but at least not come to war against them. And again, I, I think the Nephites missed an opportunity here that had uh, somebody like the sons of Mosiah been around might have brought it up, you know? Yeah, you know, I'd never even thought about that before. That's a that's a really powerful thought about how those moments we miss. You know, a lot of the times our narratives we 
we're simply looking on the next step in order to kind of justify or to be able to to frame the narratives that we believe in. But had the Nephites been the kind of the kind of people that were always looking for ways to send missionaries in, you know, we default all the time into war and violence. That's our that's our standard default. Is we send you know peaceful remonstrations as long as that's necessary, and then war. And war is kind of always that last looming result of like, you know, we're going to push everything off until war, but war is always the final destination that we're just doing everything we can until we get to war. And I've often wondered, what if we changed the end goal? Like the end goal was never war. And we decided that the end goal was never going to be war. How would that start to change our minds in order to create peaceful resolutions in the now, knowing that war was never going to be the option at the end? But yet the Nephites, that's how they look, because we see that they're always preparing for war. And so that's their MO. They're always looking for the next fight. They're always looking to prepare themselves against the next aggression. They're always looking to have the war and to be able to defend themselves against it. Yeah, but what if? What if they had uh, been a missionary-minded people? But, you know, we learn in Alma, you know, Alma 26 again. The Nephites laughed the sons of Mosiah to scorn. You know, we should go up there and to destroy the Lamanites out of their land before they have a chance of coming in and destroying us and ours. And you know, thank God they didn't. Yeah. Again, feeding into this narrative and the the whole ability of Amalickiah to persuade the Lamanites to to actually attack the Nephites. You know, once he gets that army and unifies it and they go back and he murders the king and oh my goodness, just quite the you could probably make a pretty good movie out of this i know somebody's tried but i don't know if anyway (laughs) (laughs) let's not talk about that um the story here is quite interesting in terms of uh, its political machinations so chapter 48 verse 1 and it came to pass that as soon as amalickiah had obtained the kingdom he began to inspire the hearts of the lamanites against the people of nephi yea he did appoint men to speak into the Lamanites from their towers against the Nephites. Okay, this is good old-fashioned war propaganda, right? So what kinds of things do you imagine Amalickiah is telling the Lamanites to get them to go to war? The Nephites, I've seen their stuff. They have awful, awesome, awesome weapons, they have these terrible weapons that they're going to be able to destroy you with. These are weapons of mass destruction. And if we don't destroy them first, they're going to destroy us. I know because I was a Nephite and I was there and I saw all this stuff they're building. They're coming after us. They're coming to kill all of you and all of your families. And unless we go now and destroy them, they will be too strong and they will beat us. And look, you can just look over at their cities. Look at all the stuff they're building. And I imagine these types of things that Amalickiah is saying and that he's getting all of his men to say up on the towers, right? To sit, to persuade these Lamanites, we need to go to war now because these Nephites are preparing for war. And if we let them keep preparing, they're going to come and destroy us. Um, and sure enough, I mean, the Nephites really are. Now, the whole narrative among the Nephites is that they're going to stay in their lands and it's simply defensive, right? But no matter how defensive their intentions are, the appearance is that 
is always that of aggression because they're strengthening their borders. Well, okay, are they doing it to strengthen their defense or are they doing it in preparation for an invasion? And, you know, I think there's a whole discussion of this in in Augustine on just war and everything like that. And, And I know that there's a lot of literature on this fact that often acts of intended defense can be viewed as acts of of aggression right and you know we have to be we have to be aware of that that even preparations for defense depending on your perspective and your worldview and your nationalism and your cultural baggage can be viewed as aggressive we have verse 8 yay he's talking about moroni and what moroni's been doing he had been strengthening the armies of the nephites and erecting small forts or places of resort throwing up banks of earth round about to enclose his armies and also building walls of stone to encircle them about round about their cities and the borders of their lands, yea, all round about the land. And then, oh, I guess this is a little later in the chapters, but we have uh, Moroni do something here that another thing that Moroni does that uh, I really have to scratch my head at because it not only is it contradicting the the alma narrative but it seems to actually be contradicting the stated nephite principles about how they're supposed to conduct war he does something in chapter 50 that i have to raise my eyebrows at here um in verse 7 and it came to pass that moroni caused that his armies should go forth into the east wilderness yea and they went forth and drove all the lamanites who were in the east wilderness into their own lands which were south of the land of zarahemla well, this is interesting. So why were the Lamanites there? Well, because they were possessing the land. But Moroni's narrative here is that it's not their land. It's the Nephites' land. And uh, Well, what are the Lamanites doing there? Well, apparently they weren't an army or they would have fought. They just left. And so what does Moroni have him do? He says, And the land of Nephi did run in a straight course from the east sea to the west. And it came to pass that when Moroni had driven all the Lamanites out of the east wilderness which was north of the lands of their own possessions, he caused that the inhabitants who were in the land of Zarahemla and in the land round about should go forth into the east wilderness, even to the borders by the seashore, and possess the land. Well, if that doesn't feed into the whole Nephites or aggressors narrative, I don't know what does, right? I mean, the Nephites are going to have a hard time persuading the Lamanites that they're not really out to aggress against them. They're really only interested in defending themselves when they do stuff like this. Uh, so I think I see this as, as pretty problematic. I don't know how to explain uh, the justification for this because, uh, you know, going back to chapter 48, verse 14, it says they were taught never to give an offense yea, and never to raise the sword except were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. Now, I guess in this narrative, they feel like they're doing this out of defense, right? It's that pre- this is kind of a preemptive war, though. No, I think there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, you, you connected a lot of dots that I hadn't really put together. And this this Nephite narrative, you know, we've gone over 48 quite a bit. And I think at this point, I'd just be re- rereading a bunch of stuff and reframing a bunch of narratives. But one of the things I wanted to bring up is is we talked about, I talked about how fast the Nephite cycle is going on. And it seems to be that Mormon kind of gets an idea about how fast their righteousness, wickedness cycle is going on. At the end of 47, in verse 36, he says, And now we see these dissenters, having the same instruction and the same information of the Nephites, having been instructed in the same knowledge of the Lord, it is strange to relate, not long after their dissensions, they become more hard-hearted and more wild and wicked and ferocious than the Lamanites. 
drinking in with the traditions of the Lamanites, giving way to indolence and all manner of lasciviousness and entirely forgetting the Lord their God. So yeah, he, he sees just the depravity of, of when you have greater light and knowledge, you follow so fast, but he's, he's this curious, this curiosity of how fast it happens and how strange it is to relate that not long after the dissensions, that, that this pride cycle is going really fast and sometimes it can go really, really fast. And then kind of on the other side, it's, you know, you get righteous again. But in, uh, you know, you were bringing in chapter 50 here. I think it's remarkable just to kind of prove and, and to show the point that we've been talking about where it says in verse 19, and thus we see how merciful and just are the dealings of the Lord to the filling of all his words into the children of men. Yea, we can behold that his words are verified even at the time in which he spake unto Lehi, saying, Blessed art thou and thy children, and they shall be blessed, inasmuch as they shall keep the commandments, and they shall prosper in the land. But remember, inasmuch as they will not keep my commandments, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And we see that these promises have been verified to the people of Nephi, for it has been their quarrelings, their contentions, their murderings, and their plunderings, their idolatry, their whoredoms, and their abominations, which were among themselves, which brought upon them the wars and their destructions. You know, this just goes to frame the narrative that Mormon says before in, 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 in Mormon, actually, where he says that the wicked destroy the wicked. This is the Nephite tradition, that it is their wickedness that brings upon them their war. And here we see again in Alma 50 that it was their murderings, their plunderings, idolatry, whoredoms, their abominations, which were among themselves that brought upon them the wars and their destructions. But it was those who were faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord that were delivered at all times. Whilst thousands of their wicked brethren have been consigned into bondage or perish with by the sword to dwindle in unbelief and mingle with the Lamanites. And it's those who are faithful. Again, we have the good, better, best narrative. And mm-hmm. Ben, I, I showed you a picture of my scriptures. Um, I took in my scriptures. I thought it was kind of fun. <laughs> yes. But every single page on the left side, on the, on the bottom left hand, I've put good, better, best from Alma 42 all the way until Alma 63. I wanted to remind myself that this is a narrative of good, better, and best. That there are good options, there are better options, and then there's the best options. And for me, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, because of all of this amounting evidence, shows that that is perhaps the best example that we've heard yet in the Book of Mormon for how to deal with conflict. The more, the most Christ-like, Christ-centered, consistent message. This may be a good or even a better message, but that's the best one. But the Nephites here, remember to put first things first to be able to show that just because Mormon is kind of fanboying here, and, and, and this is one of the things that I've always said, you know, if I were like Captain Moroni, I may make hell shake, you know, and that might be a cool thought, you know, you know, I made hell shake today. But really, I don't want to exemplify Moroni, if I'm completely honest. He's not my archetype. He's not the one that I want to be like. I want to be like Jesus Christ. I want to be like that humble Nazarene who, when he should have gone one way, he went the other as he led himself to the cross. I want to follow Jacob 1.8 when it says that I bear the shame and the suffering of the world and that I will bear my cross like my Savior bore his cross so that I self-sacrifice for the other in finite and temporal ways 
what my Savior has done in infinite and eternal ways. That I can exemplify His example in all the matters of conflict, in all the matters of violence. And that is really easy to say. Because I live in a neighborhood where I'm not dealing with violence. I'm not dealing with these kinds of issues. I'm not dealing with foreign invading armies. I'm sitting here in the comfort of my own home, pontificating about you know, the right way to go out and do things to defend your country. And I get that. But that doesn't change the fact that the scriptures are teaching us good, better, and best. That those who are truly converted to the Lord lose their, des- their fear and they lose the desire of having to defend themselves in this temporal world because they see eternity, themselves in eternity, and they know their place in eternity. They see the eternal view, and because they see the eternal view, they no longer have fear of what can happen to them in the flesh. See, I can still be here in my comfortable chair, in my comfortable neighborhood, without having that, and practice and try to become the kind of person that even if I am in a situation when I have to deal with conflict, I can still act like my Savior. Because it, for the first thing I need to do to even start down that road of being like my Savior is admitting who and what He was like. Because unless I begin to see my Savior as He was, and not just as I want Him to be in my sociocultural, my socio-religious, and my socio-political narratives, in the mythos and the ethos that then inform me how I should be as a man, how I should be as a father, how I should be as a protector, how I should be as any one of a number of things, how many guns I should have in my safe, how, how more proficient I should be at doing that, how armed I should have, how many security systems I should have in my door, what gated neighborhood I live in. You know, there, I live in a town where ha- there's like double gated neighborhoods, where there's a gated neighborhood within yeah. a gated neighborhood. And I live next to a gated neighborhood, and there was a car stolen last week out of the gated neighborhood next to mine. You know, false senses of security all the way around. See, I'm, I'm over living in just false senses of security. My house can burn down tonight. Anything can happen. I can have someone break into my home tonight. I don't know. Anything can literally happen. And I'm tired of living in false senses of security. And I really just want to double down and to realize that, you know what, just like in like lame is the bishop leaves his door open. He realizes and he consecrates everything to God. And he simply says, God, all of this is yours. Someone steals my car. And I'm like, Hey God, someone stole your car. What do you want me to do about it? Because I live in such a reality where nothing is mine, everything is God, that I've consecrated everything, even my own life, to where when I walk out and someone steals from me, that you can't steal from me because nothing is mine. My life is not even my own, and I've consecrated my own life, and I live in such a way like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that death is not a thing for me anymore. See, that's where real peace comes from. That's where real life comes from. That's where true liberty is found. It's not simply the lack of external control. It's not that just one government regime comes in and wants to force people with physical control, or it's not just that someone wants to come and control or to take away or to aggress against your body. You know, real peace comes from an internal recognition of your place with God. And once you recognize just how much God 
is there and how much, God, you are just enveloped always in the love of God. The fears in this life that prop up all of our defenses and that prop up all of our ways of wanting to control and to regulate and to manipulate everything in our external world just melt away. And to be frankly, I'm just tired of dealing with the next thing that I have to do to try to defend myself and hedge myself against my neighbor in some particular way. I'm just tired. And I think there's a better way. And for me, when I read the scriptures, I see the Antonifi-Lehi's as that better way. They lose the fear. And because they lose the fear, they're just infilled with the love of God. And that's where they gain their strength. The strength to be someone who goes out and just prostrates themselves and lets the world come and say, you know what, I'm going to kill you. And they're going to be like, you know what, go for it. I'm going to praise pray to God while you're doing it. For you. Not even for my own preservation, but for you. Wow. A stark contrast to what's going on here. Because we see Captain Ronnie coming in with the Freeman. He comes in, the Freeman, you know, he's out fighting a war. You have a bunch of really obnoxious, rich, royal nobles. And all these rich, royal nobles want to do is they just, you know, they're like, you know what? We're not going to fight. And they're not doing it for any principle. They're not doing it because they have any truth behind them. They're not doing it anti-Nephi-Lehi style. They're doing it because they're rich, pompous, arrogant people who aren't going to lift a sword. That's who they are. And so Mormon, who's going out there toiling and laboring, he's quick to anger. He's wrathful. That's just who he is. But yet he's a good man. And he comes back, though, and he kills 4,000 of them. And it says that uh, the people who finally would say, yeah, we'll come fight. He says, (laughs) this is such an ironic verse. Chapter 51, verse 20. And the remainder of those dissenters, rather than be smitten down to the earth by the sword... So you see a lot lot of these rich, pompous, arrogant, you know, I see that you haven't done a day's worth of work in your life kind of people. And they're like, oh, everybody's getting killed around them. And it's like, rather than being killed, they yielded to the standard of liberty and were compelled to hoist the title of liberty upon their towers. (laughs) (laughs) And the most ironic verse ever to be compelled to hoist liberty, you know, to compel liberty is just ironic. And I love in verse 22, this, I, this may be one of my new favorite verses ever. Behold, it came to pass that while Moroni was thus breaking down the wars and contentions among his own people and subjecting them to peace and civilization. (laughs) (laughs) What does that even mean? That he was breaking down the wars and contentions among his people and subjecting them to peace and civil. You know, if you're not going to be subject to peace, I'm going to give you peace. <laughs> like, what, does that, what does that even mean? So, yeah, it's it's just absolutely well, fascinating. Peace is, peace is his left fist and civilization is his right fist. <laughs> <laughs> but man, there's, there's so much here. And Ben, I really feel like we've left so much out. We've gone over quite a bit. Um, and I knew it was going to take us a long time to get through this. Oh. Well, I know the section goes through chapter 52, but um, I I didn't have much more notes um, through the chapter. On, quite honestly, um, there's there's a lot to discuss in 51 and 52, 
but um, it's um, it's kind of more of the same stuff that we have already discussed. And a lot of it is just the discussion uh, also of the actual tactics of war and stuff. I don't have a lot of commentary on that personally. Um, it kind of just is what it is for me. I don't, I don't have commentary on their war strategy. So, yeah, I think a lot of the war strategy tells us far more about Mormon than it actually does about the doctrine of Christ. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think Mormon ends up getting into this and he just finds this absolutely fascinating because you'll get like a whole, like four pages worth of strategy and military. And then you'll have like this one verse that is like, and thus we see because the iniquity amongst themselves and because of their dissensions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're like, wow, you just took like four pages to give me that one and thus we see. And But you can see because of his military prowess and his life experience and everything that he was, I have such moving and loving compassion for Mormon. And, and in that, I have such love and compassion for Moroni. Because these are men of their times. These are men of the, they are products of who and what they are and of the time in which they live. And, and as I said, these are men who are doing the best they can. Now, are these beatitude, you know, is Captain Moroni a beatitude type Christian? Um, I, I just don't know about that. I, I, I don't, I don't I can't know. See it, I, I can't, but, I can't see it. Right. But we, we don't, you know, obviously what we have written is not the total of who Moroni is. Exactly. And I have absolutely zero judgment in my heart. And I want to reiterate just again, is that I know this appears in a lot of ways as two hours worth of Captain Moroni bashing. That's not the heart of this at all, even a little bit, because my heart is so full of gratitude for Moroni. What it is, is it's simply just a counteracting narrative of looking at the, the text of what the Book of Mormon is teaching us, looking at the assumptions that we've made in the text, and of how we've put certain things on certain pedestals, and realizing that the justifications that how we've done that don't really support as much as we think it does. And then re- just reevaluating it, coming back to it, and then reapproaching Moroni, reapproaching Tiancum, reapproaching Lehi, reapproaching Helaman, and all of these figures who are in this milieu of just, I mean, war is hell. No matter who you are, no matter what you are, you can be a beatitude type Christian, you can be an anti Nephi Lehi. You can be a you can be a son of Mosiah. It doesn't matter. You are in war. You're in hell. It's just there's nothing good in it. But these are the best of the best of the best people that can and be and were in war. And yet, as we've explained for the last two hours, this was their life. This is the reality by which they lived, and this is the result of what happened. Now it does tell us that the people of Nephi were happier among this time with Moroni being there to protect them than they'd ever been before. Because it's in chapter 50, verse 23. And now there was never a happier time among the people of Nephi since the days of Nephi than in the days of Moroni. Yea, even at this time in the 21st year of the reign of the judges. And so I have to wonder a little bit um, how much this reflects like the glory days of King David. You know, the, the Jews looked right. back on the glories of King Saul and King David and King Solomon, that those were their glory days. They were never happier because in these times we knew we were protected and we knew we were on top. The good old days. The good old days, right? And and so I, I really, man, I, there's so many questions I want to ask Mormon 
when I see him and I'm like, what was the original text that you pulled that from? Like, how did you 400 years later, you know, 500 years later, look back on this and make this value judgment that there was never a happier time among the people of Nephi? Like, what, what is this? You know, there's these four years and we didn't really bring that up um, heavily, but from the time that um, after 46, when Amalekiah is defeated for the first time, and then he goes over to the, to the Lamanites and he does his whole espionage with the Lamanites and becomes the king of the Lamanites. And then by the time he comes back for the second time as the king of the Lamanites, four years have gone by. And it's those four years of peace that basically is this, there was never a happier time. And so I want to know what, what was going on there? Because if it was just a lack of a lack of external conflict that they felt peace because Moroni just never stopped building fortifications and they felt that they were peaceful because they had fortifications around them. What, what was it? And the fact is, is we just don't, we just don't really know. So Ben, next week we are going to finish up with the war chapters. Um, there's a lot to be said and, and I, and I know we're going to keep on, uh, kind of expounding on a few narratives and we'll bring out some more examples and I hope everybody's stuck with us this far. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. These next uh, chapters have some, some different stories to them, some different narratives that we can bring out and, and compare and and contrast. And so uh, there's a lot more good stuff, but you know, it's another 10 chapters. So let's see, see how we can condense that a little bit. Let's do it till next time. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for listening.